and welcome to the Scriptures Are Real podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have become real to us because we believe that helps us apply them in our lives better and we need all the help we can get. I'm your host, Carrie Mielstein, and I'm so thrilled to have with me a guest today that I really don't know very well, but I've quickly become an admirer of Emily Robinson Adams. Did I say it right? You did. Oh, yes. Wonderful. So I should have asked that beforehand, but Emily uh, Robinson Adams, who uh, I recently listened to her book, uh, Divine Quietness, on uh, on Desiree Book Plus, and uh, just I, I I usually have some books that I'm listening to that are fiction, and then others that are nonfiction but uplift me, and I usually listen to those at kind of a slower pace. And this one I just couldn't stop, and I got it done uh, in probably about three days uh, because it was gripping to me, and I could see how powerful it was for so many people and how applicable it was. For people, and I've had students that are already telling me that it's helped them, and so uh, we're just thrilled to have you uh, on with us. All I know about Emily is that she lives in Bountiful, and she is an author, and the story that she shares in the book. But welcome, Emily. Oh, thank you, thank you so much, Carrie. I'm happy to be here. Okay, before we get going, let's just kind of give a, a brief preview of what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about uh, Emily's book, but about uh, faith and belief and ask some of the hard questions about God and and how we believe what we believe about God how we believe in God what do we do when our beliefs are challenged and uh and kind of why might God take longer to help some people than others why we don't hear God sometimes uh and and hit on some very real elements of this uh question and and what I think is a really powerful way the way that Emily talks about this yeah please tell us a little bit more about yourself well, I, I actually am a BYU baby. In fact, my All parents, right, I was I was born at BYU. I was raised in Colorado. Um, I got my uh, undergraduate degree in linguistics at BYU, which was a really super fun, but completely impractical degree. And <laughs> then I went to law school out in Minnesota. I was married. I got married here while I was in Utah too, actually a University of Utah grad. So we are a house divided. <laughs> and um, we went out to Minnesota for graduate school and then moved back here about nine years ago. We have three children together, and um, I'm, I'm a lawyer. I do appeals. I work at a place called the Appellate Group, and probably about 80% of my caseload is indigent criminal defense appeals. Um, and a couple of years ago, I had an epic faith crisis. So, uh, and because I write for a living, appellate work is essentially writing big essays all the time. Um, about a year into it, I sat down and decided to write my way through it, that I was either going to you know, stay with God or leave God, but I needed to write to figure it out. And six months later, I had the manuscript for Divine Quietness. And of course, I went through some more edits after that, but it was the writing process that helped me stay with God. Uh, and there is something about being forced to really think through your thoughts as you're trying to write them in a way someone else can understand that that clarifies your own thinking and process for you. So uh, I'm just going to thank you. I think you're you're both very uh, open and uh, honest and vulnerable, but uh, uh, incredibly uh, forward thinking isn't the right phrase for it, but just uh, able to to I guess self analyze a kind of meta uh, meta analysis of your uh, thinking that is powerful in in this book. And so we'll talk about the book and so on uh, as we go along. I'm sure, but I'd, I'd love to just start out. I know you share in the book. Uh, a story uh, for yourself, that uh, a scriptural story for yourself, that's also very powerful and meaningful to me uh, in Mark chapter nine, that became very real to you. And so I was hoping that you'd be willing to share that with my audience, uh, the, the impact of Mark chapter nine for you. Absolutely. So in Mark nine, we have Jesus being transfigured in front of Peter, James, and John. And then after he and Peter, James, and John come out, off of the Mount of Transfiguration, they come to a crowd and Jesus' disciples are there and there's some unrest happening. And, um, you know, they ask, well, what's happening? And the crowd says, look, you know, there was a, um, there was a, a father there. And he said, look, I, I brought my son to your disciples to be healed and they can't do it. They can't do it. And Jesus makes this comment. It's not clear to whom, but he says, oh, faithless generation, you know, how long will I abide you? And then he turns to the father and he asks, the father, you know, how long has your son been this way? And the father tells him about it. And then this is what is the part that, that hit me the most. Um, this is what the father says. 
Many times, he says, so the father says, from childhood, that's the, long, the son has been sick since childhood. Many times it throws him into fire or water that it might kill him. But if you're able, help us and have compassion on him and have compassion on us. And Jesus said to him, said to him if you are able, all things are possible for the one who believes. Right away, the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. And then at that point, Jesus healed the son. What was really and I think you're reading from a little bit different translation yes. there, right? Just so I am, I am. Sorry. So. I'm reading from Wayman's translation, which right. I really like. Um, I realized pretty early on that I was, um, I just needed something new in my scripture study. And I picked up Wayman's translation and I was impressed by how much I, oh, I was, I was shocked at how much I was missing because the language was so old in the King James Version. And then how much it had become so familiar that I was glossing over it. So it was really awesome to pick up a new translation and it really like focused me and made me, forced me to really read the words instead of being like, oh, I've read this a thousand times. But yeah, this is Wayman's translation. And um, one, one, what really impressed me about this was that when I was, um, as I talk about in the book, I, I, I felt that I, I really needed to figure out how to get direct answers to prayers. And so I devised this whole plan where I would figure out how to, how could, God could give me a direct answer to one prayer, you know, one question, um, which was, is the Book of Mormon true? And then that would, using that, I could then extrapolate and figure out how to get direct answers from God on everything else. So I read the Book of Mormon for six weeks. I knelt down and prayed, and of course there was nothing. And then I just felt this complete silence from God and from the spirit. I just felt completely abandoned and it caused uh, a lot of doubt. And for a long time, I was in a space where I, I, I didn't, really know how to respond. I didn't feel like I could engage with my doubts. Um, I felt ashamed that I was doubting. I felt unworthy. Um, and I was unable to really grapple with them because there was so much shame that came along with them. And what struck me about this story is that Jesus seems to ask the father to actually articulate his doubts first. Because you know, the father's response is, but if you're able, help us and have compassion on us. And Jesus's response isn't, wait, you're doubting, that's horrible, that's terrible. He's, he's, his response is, if you're able, like it seems like he's trying to draw out of the father the true state of his belief. And once the father can acknowledge that he has some doubts and that he needs some help with those doubts, then Jesus can get to work and can heal the son. And so I know that there's lots of different commentators that have interpreted this in a different way, but I really like this interpretation where Jesus is trying to get the father to acknowledge his doubts first. And then once the father has acknowledged them, then Jesus can work with them. And I think that's so powerful because uh, he's, he's not saying, if you have doubts, you have no faith. And the, and the father's also not saying that, right? You, you have no belief. I think all of us, they coexist within us, that there is a certain level of faith and a certain level of doubt. And maybe those doubts are about us. Maybe they're about God. Maybe they're about our relationship with God, what God is willing to do. Those doubts can take a thousand different uh, looks, but we all have at the exact same time, a degree of faith and, and doubt. And, uh, and being honest about that is part of what will uh, help us come to God. I love the man's example, being able to say, I, I do believe, but I also need help with my unbelief. And that's that's a really powerful, it's a, a genuine, authentic, uh, and open and honest, powerful place to be, I believe. It really is. And before you can ever really, I mean, the one thing that I think that's, that's harmful about doubt, um, and that was hard for me, was that my, I, I think that we all built these frameworks for our faith, these stories that we tell about our faith. And um, the doubts that I had demolished those stories. <laughs> and so I really didn't feel like I had anything left. And so what the doubts did is they exposed a lot of the weaknesses that I had um, and I didn't that I didn't realize were there. And until I recognized that, until I recognized what the weaknesses were and that you know, what the doubts were exposing and why they were so painful and harmful. I couldn't really engage with them. They were just this really kind of big gaping wound. So the doubts can't, doubt can be a way that we can, in the end, make our faith stronger. Um, but it can be a really painful process to go through. And I think the first step is to do what the father did here and 
take that doubt, acknowledge that our doubts exist and acknowledge what they Good. look like and then take them to God and say, okay, like, I'm really struggling with this. What do we do with this? Good. And I, I love that approach. I know um, this idea of having uh, doubts has been kind of a big topic in the church for a little while. And uh, as there are many of us, uh, you, me, others that are trying to help people with that, there have been some who have, uh, I, I know some leadership in the church has been concerned about almost like glorifying having doubts, right? And And I don't know that that's what we're trying to do, but I think that's different than saying doubts are real. Um, and, uh, so maybe let me put it this way about a year ago, president Nelson, uh, in general conference gave a talk on faith and my, my first instinct, right. Uh, this will reveal the pride I need to work on, but my first instinct was, okay, I understand faith. I have faith. I don't know how applicable this is to me. Right. And, and then I had to stop and say, no, actually, I mean, if I had all the faith I needed, then my life would certainly be different, right? Not that I'm saying that there, I'd have no problems because we're supposed to have all sorts of challenges and whatever else, right? But but it was just really clear to me that, no, I don't have perfect faith. What am I talking about? Um, and, uh, and just wrestling with myself and saying, it's all right that my faith needs to grow. It's okay that I, I don't have perfect faith. It's, it's, it's good to admit that I have room to work on things here uh that that's an important step for all of us i think and 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 then the question is where do you go from there and as as you point out in your book you know you can turn away and that's a natural reaction that many people have so if you've had that reaction don't beat yourself up over it just the question is at some point are you going to turn back and say okay what do i do with with these these struggles. So anyways, I, I keep, I, I'd love to keep uh, for you to keep going with where you went uh, from here. Right. So my biggest, my, my doubts went to just the nature of God. So it was, you know, I, when I, when I felt that God went quiet, I really started questioning and wondering if God existed and if God did exist was God even worth worshiping? Was God wrathful? Was God, you know, and, and I was in that space for a really, really long time. And it, it took me a while to get to the point where I could say, the, it took me a while to articulate, you know, why did the quietness cause these types of questions? Why did the quietness cause these types of feelings? And because um, you really have to get to the root of it. And you have to say, you know, for example, when I hear folks that struggle with certain policies um, or certain pieces of history, sometimes it's like, well, why is it so hurtful to um, learn that Joseph Smith maybe did something that wasn't completely upstanding? And it's because maybe we have this core belief that church leaders should be pretty near perfect, or maybe there's this core belief that because God is leading the church, that our leaders should be, you know, that our leaders are following God all the time and always inspired or something like that. And once you begin to get to those thoughts, like the core root beliefs that you have or those core thoughts that you have, you can begin to pick them apart and say, well, maybe that's not entirely true. Maybe our leaders are human. Maybe Joseph Smith was quite young and had quite a bit of stuff on his plate and was just trying to figure it out and made a lot of mistakes or, you know, things like that. And you can begin to pick apart those thoughts and begin to really analyze them and say, what parts here are um, maybe not necessarily, what, what parts here serve me and which thoughts are not serving? And the ones that aren't serving you, you can, you know, dismiss. And the ones that are serving you, you can keep. And you just have to play with it for a while until you find a thought that feels more true or that serves you better or that's closer to reality. And so for me, it took a while to, um, it, it, the, the doubts really went to the nature of God and went to um, my idea that I, I really thought deep down that if I did certain things that God would have to respond in a certain way. So it was a very type of transactional, I can control God type of mindset. But what's interesting is I had never thought about it like that. Like it had never even come to mind that that was kind of the posture that I had towards God. I think it was something that we just were kind of taught as kids and I just kind of consumed it, yeah. you know, just, you know, it's just like, if you pay your tithing, you'll be blessed. If you, if you, um, you know, do these things, these are the blessings you get from following these commandments, which I think is a, okay. It's a certainly proper way to teach people, but at some point you have to move past the, if then transactional type of mindset. Yeah, so, and maybe so, I can just kind of jump in there yeah. and say, I think uh, in my point of view, like this is a profound teaching, but we can take it the wrong way. The, the idea, you know, if you, 
uh, if you do what I say, God says, I'm bound if you do what I say, but if you do not what I say, you have no promise. And, and we're emphasizing right now, I think appropriate, so wonderful prophetic emphasis that uh, if you're keeping your covenants, you have access to more power and so on. But it's easy for us to translate that in our mind to, okay, then if I do A, God has to do B, where God may be saying, actually, B is not really what you need right now. So I'm going to give you the blessing, but it may not look like what you think it will or when you think it will, and all sorts of things like that, right? So, I, but But it stems from this very true teaching that God is bound and uh, by our obedience in some ways and will only do what is good for us, but it's according to his definition of good, not ours, right? So anyways, uh, right. sorry, right. keep, keep going. I mean, yeah. It's so easy for us to take DNT 8 to 10 and turn it into like, I can control God, right? So if I do all these things, then God has to respond to me in a certain way. Yeah. So was it was it Elder? And I think you even referenced this. I'm trying to remember now. It was these are the Tom things Christopherson. Yeah, and then, of course. His brother, Elder Christopherson, has also talked about God being a vending machine. Yeah, the vending um, machine. That's the, the metaphor yeah. I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, keep going. God. And the thing is, it took me a really long time to get to a point where I, I realized first that that was the root of my issue. And then to walk through, like, if I don't have a vending machine, God, then can I trust God? Do I want to trust God? And what does that look like? If I can't depend on God to give me something when I ask or to give me the blessings that are promised when I ask them or to, you know, if I follow all the commandments, this isn't going to happen. If I can't depend on God to do that, then what, you know, what, why should I follow God? And anyway, it came down to, um, for me, I just had a very brief experience where I just felt strongly that God was good. And it was amazing as I've gone through all of this, all the doubt and just kind of the process of clearing out a lot of these thoughts that were unhelpful. The idea that God was good just stuck and that was enough. And I could say, I can stay with God because God is good. I can trust God because God is good. But it and took you a little while to get there, right? Like you oh, weren't like, there initially. Like, yeah. Like 15 months to get there. 15 yeah. months to get there. So, and the first year was, um, the first year was just really, um, hard it was dark I, I experienced some pretty significant depression and anxiety I was really I was in a space where and I couldn't really talk to people about it because I wasn't really sure what I was feeling and then uh, once I was able to talk with people about it those feelings lessened but then I needed to go get some help because my brain was so muddled from all the depression and all the anxiety so it took a year to get to a point where I was willing to think about it and really start working through it and then a couple months after that of just writing and thinking and wondering and um, to get to a point where I'm like, okay, I think this is the root of the problem, or this is one of the roots of the problem. And if I can replace a controllable God with a God is good, I think I can stay with God. That's a powerful thing. And I know, I, I personally know people who are in the middle of that, that other part, and it's been longer than, than a year, uh, but, uh, but are in the midst of that difficult part of trying to figure out what do I think about God right now? And for some of them, I know it's been because uh, they prayed um, for uh, uh, God to do something and he didn't do it. And they could clearly see this is a good thing for me. Why is God not doing it? And so they're starting to question why God has abandoned them. For others, it's uh, uh, all right, I know God is real, but I don't get this thing, so I'm not sure that God is good, and and so on. And uh, so there are a lot of things that that uh, can look like, and a lot of time periods that it can cover. Uh, and that's part of what I appreciate that that you've been through it, and you can speak to that. So I keep interrupting you. I'm going to let you keep going now. <laughs> oh no, please keep the keep keep chatting. I love that. I, and it's true. I mean, I felt so incredibly alone during the whole process. I felt like. Out of God's billions of children, I was the defective one that could not, that just was, could not get answers, could not, you know, just couldn't get it. And after the book was released, and um, it's amazing to me how many people have said, I have felt the same way. And so I think this struggle with God is something that's really common. And I yeah. think it's, I mean, it's just, it's the struggle of the ages. And when you go back and you read in the Old Testament, you read Job and Ecclesiastes. And, you know, these are people who are really struggling and wrestling with God and trying to figure out if God is worth it. Should I stay with God? What does my relationship with God look like? And um, it's hard. It's a hard wrestle. It's a hard wrestle. I think it's sometimes challenging because we sometimes in our church focus on those where it, 
sometimes baked maybe appears a little bit more, um, it comes more easily, you know. No. Um, but I do think that there's a good contingent that just of us that just have to spend some time thinking about whether what God looks like to them and whether God's worth worshiping. And I think yeah. it's, I think that's actually really, it's a good thing to engage in, although it can be really challenging and really hard. And, and painful. Yeah. Um, so it's been, uh, I do think though that it is, I, I always go back to Jacob. I just love the idea of Jacob wrestling with God and how Jacob came away from that experience limping. And I wonder sometimes why wrestling with God can be so hard. I don't have a good answer for that. Um, but Jacob came away limping and limped, I believe, the rest of his life. And sometimes our interactions with God can leave us feeling wounded in that way. Um, but I do think that, for me at least, having this deep down, like I can't deny God is good, has allowed me to stay and has given me a space where I can say all these things. God can turn anything for my good. He can redeem anything. And that's, that's allowed me to stay and, and has redeemed this, you know, really, really hard year and a half. That was, that was incredibly challenging. It, it redeemed that time period. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, I, I think um, that this is becoming increasingly important. You mentioned that you've had a lot of feedback from people about, Hey, I felt this way and so on. And you mentioned Job and so on. And I think uh, it is a question that has been around for forever. And uh, everyone is going to have to, in, in one way or another, everyone's going to have to wrestle with this because no one has life go perfectly. If so, then you signed up for the wrong mortal probation, right? So, uh, but if you're in this mortal probation, you're going to have tough things and you're going to have to say, okay, why is this happening? And so on. So everyone's going to have to wrestle with that. But I think we're in an era where it's happening even more. And some of that is the, the, the secularism and the individualism of our society. But I think there's a, another element at play as well, where we're seeing this rise in we could have a big discussion on why we're seeing the rise, but we're seeing this rise in anxiety and depression. And um, and it's a little bit of a chicken and an egg question, and maybe even in your situation as well. But I know that for many people, as depression or anxiety arises, they struggle more and more with hearing God or feeling God's love. Uh, it's more difficult. And then sometimes, and I'm not saying, I think I've talked about this before in the podcast, and I want to be very sure. I'm not saying don't take medication for anxiety or depression. I am not saying that. But I am saying that sometimes the medication makes it all, it, it depresses feelings. And that's sometimes, right? You have, We have what are called mood control drugs and so on. And, and that sometimes makes it harder to respond to a, a presence that often speaks to us through feelings. Um, and, uh, and so I think we have an increase in that struggle in our day that, that it's probably larger proportions than we've had in the past. And so this message that you're sending out is all the more important. Oh, yes. And I, I really liked Thomas Merton. Uh, he's a Catholic monk and he talked about how, um, I like this idea <laughs> I don't know if it really resonates with others, but I like the idea. He talks about how ultimately our goal is to be um is to connect with god's will be willing to accept god's will and that sometimes god's will is is not feeling the spirit and that uh feeling the spirit is more of a um once in a while byproduct than actually you know the daily progress of walking with god anyway he says it better than than i just did but um sometimes oh he calls it an accident sometimes he calls it an accident so i um, I got to a point where, so my depression and anxiety came because I was feeling quietness, but I know for a lot of folks, it's the opposite. And um, I got to a point where I realized that if my entire life were quiet, but I didn't feel the spirit again, it would be okay. And, um, and I realized I'm like, if that is God's will, it's, that'll be okay. Um, because I realized that there were other, you know, that there were reasons for me to follow God that were more significant to me than just feeling the spirit afterwards as a byproduct. So for example, I do think that there's a lot of commandments that we follow and a lot of things that we do that God asks us to do that God asks us to do that are just inherently good. And so I could say, I can do these inherently good things and whether or not I feel the spirit afterwards or during, 
is, is irrelevant to whether I'll do those things or not. So, um, so I got to the point where I was just like, if I don't ever feel the spirit again, I can, that's, that's just, just is what it is. So thankfully I have felt it again, which is really nice, but it is interesting to think about the reasons why we do things. Um, are we doing things because we're chasing after a feeling or are we doing things because they are inherently good? And sometimes it's good to maybe adjust our focus, especially if we're in a space that's feeling depression and anxiety where you know the standard things like scriptures and prayers and church can be really, really, really hard. General conference can be really, really, really hard. Maybe we can change how we talk about them. And instead of saying, I did this and I felt the spirit, it could be, I did this because it was inherently good. I was a Relief Society teacher during a good part of it. And um, I remember I would teach Relief Society lessons and just feel nothing. Like it was just, it was just nothing. And I would have sisters come up to me afterwards and say, oh, I just felt the spirit so strongly in your lesson. And I would respond, I'm so glad you did. Yeah. <laughs> and in the back of the mind, I'm like, I felt absolutely nothing. <laughs> and so, uh, but the work of putting that lesson together and of trying to figure out what I could say from a genuine place and, you know, what might be helpful to the people in that room was good work. You know, whether or not I felt the spirit because of it or not, that was good work to do. And so... Um, it's hard. It's hard when you feel disconnected from God. So incredibly challenging. I just, I always thought that people who said um, that they had faith crises or existential crises were kind of been getting into a fad, you know, just a fad. This is what you do. It's kind of like a midlife crisis. And then I had one <laughs> and was like, this is actually incredibly challenging and yeah. very difficult to feel disconnected from heaven. You know, as, as you share that, uh, it reminds me, and, and I won't elaborate because it's his story, not mine, but, but Robert Millett, uh, who was a very, you know, a very prolific author, but also was dean of my college, religious education, at the same time was a stake president. And he talks about a time where he was hit by depression and uh, struggled to fill the spirit. And it was counseled by Quorum of the Twelve, rely on your counselors, rely on your associate deans and so on. But he's, he's talked about how um, he would try to prepare for word conferences or state conferences and wouldn't feel like he was being directed and wouldn't feel the spirit while he was speaking, but would afterwards have people come up and say, oh, what you said was an answer to prayer. And I can tell you were inspired to say this. And, and after a while, he realized he was being directed. He just wasn't feeling it or at least wasn't feeling it the way he was accustomed to feeling it or expecting or used to feeling it. But he was still being directed, even though he couldn't tell he was being directed. And that, I think that's that's similar to what you're saying and, and an important thing for anyone who's struggling with this to recognize that you may still be being directed, even though it's harder for you to tell. Yeah, right. And and depression, anxiety, like you said, is just something that. Um, there's no quick fix, at least in my experience. There's, you know, taking medication is not a quick fix. Therapy is not a quick fix. It takes a lot of work over a long period of time to get to a point where you feel better. And for some folks, it's something you struggle with your whole life. Yeah. And so it can just be a lifelong, a lifelong struggle. And it is, it can be really hard, <laughs> especially yeah. if you feel like you should be feeling something that you're not. So if you can just get rid of all of those, I should be feeling good and happy in the spirit all the time and just say, I will just, it's okay. If I'm not feeling anything, it's okay. Like I can, it's okay. I can just keep doing what I'm doing because it's inherently good. That's okay. Well, that's, that's good. All right. So I'm, I'm going to throw a curveball at you that I was not expecting to throw at you, but now, now we're going to go somewhere and then we can explore more of, I love how some of the questions you asked yourself about how am I, Am I operating with good data on my beliefs of God and that kind of a thing? But um, uh, here's a curveball that I, I'd like you to uh, us together, let's say, um, contrast uh, two situations. So maybe I'll we've got your story where uh, this took you like a year, and I know people who it's taken much longer than a year for these things. Um, maybe I'll I'll share a personal story where I interact with these verses that we started out with. Um, and for anyone in my audience who uh, also listens to follow him, I'm, I'm the guest uh, for, on follow him for when we cover the scripture block. And I share the story in there. I don't know yet. Well, you know, we we record for with those guys for like three and a half hours, and then they edit it down to two hours. So a whole bunch of stuff gets cut out. So I don't know if this will be in there or not. If it is, apologies for the story being in there twice. But um, when <clears throat> way, way, way back in the day when I was a missionary and uh, I had a companion, he was Tongan. Uh, he may not appreciate the press, but I'll even say his name, Lanito Tanisila, who is the, like the most in tune person, probably still that I've ever met. Just um, 
incredibly, incredibly in tune with the spirit, just the most humble uh, and and thy will be done kind of a person and very in tune with the spirit. Um, and we lived in an apartment. There were four missionaries in this apartment. So one night we went out on splits. I went with a word mission leader. And uh, as we were out uh, teaching people, I just got really sick, like really, really sick. We had to cut everything short. And he just brought me home because my my stomach was in incredible pain. I, I wasn't uh, throwing up, but I could tell I was going to be throwing up. And uh, But I just crazy pain in my stomach. I don't think it was life threatening, but I didn't like it. Um, and he just stayed with me until, uh, my companion, my companion and the other missionaries all got home at about the same time. And, uh, and I asked them if they would give me a blessing again, not because I thought I was going to die, but I didn't, I was sick and I had missionaries around. It seemed like it'd be a good thing to get a blessing. And so my companion gave me a blessing. And in that blessing, he promised that I'd be healed and I would, uh, just that I would be better. And he didn't give a time frame, but it seemed like he was saying I'd be healed right away. And, uh, and then the blessing was over and I'm still kind of laying on the bed and they all go to sit in the other room instead of, you know, but where they can kind of see me and, and I'm still feeling a lot of pain and, and bless his heart. One of the other missionaries that lived in the apartment came over to me and he said, you know, elder Tony Sila is inspired and you know, if you had faith, you'd be better now. And I'm not sure if that's an accurate thing to, to say or not. Right. Because we have to take into account a number of things, but, yeah. but uh, when he said that, I really had to ask myself, okay, do I just not have faith uh, or is it not God's will? And I understood maybe it's not God's will, but I, I, I started to have this question with myself. Do I not have faith? Uh, do I not have enough faith? And immediately this verse came to my mind, uh, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. And I, like, not out loud, but in my soul, I cried out that verse, meaning every bit of it fully 100% meaning it. Like I, I thought I had faith, but I can tell I have some faith and I have some lacking in faith. Please help me with that. And, uh, and almost immediately I just started shaking my whole body shaking to where the whole bed was shaking. And then within like about 20 seconds, it was gone and I was fine pain over just completely fine. Uh, able to get up and, and everything was better. Right. So, uh, that was a, that was a meaningful experience for me, and I don't know that it meant that at the time I kind of then meant okay, I have all faith for all time, and I'm done with it. You know, right? Uh, uh, a little more naive at, at uh, 20 years old than now, but um, uh, but my question is, why do you think it is? And we can explore this together. But why do you think it is that sometimes the answers will come quickly, and sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's five years or a lifetime? Uh, and how does that, my guess would be that my having shared that story with follow him, uh, or in this podcast, that there's going to be someone who is saying, why hasn't that worked for me? Why hasn't God done that for me? And that the story, which I intend to, I don't actually share it that often, but, uh, I, I, I want to do it now because it's intended to build faith, but for some people, it may actually just increase pain because they're having a different experience. So I thought maybe that was worth addressing together. I don't know if you have thoughts on that. But. Well, I, I truly believe that each of us has our own journey and that there's points that we need to work on and parts of our souls that need to be developed. And I think that there are folks that they need that immediate healing at that point in their life. For some reason, that's really important to them. I have a friend who received a priesthood blessing and uh, a significant drug addiction just disappeared. I have friends who have significant addictions and they've had multiple blessings and 20 years later, they still have this addiction, you know? And so I just think that for, it's, I don't, I don't think that the one who was healed immediately and the one who's still struggling with it have maybe different levels of faith. I prefer to think of it and whether that's true or not is a different question, but I prefer to think of it as that they each needed to learn different things on their journey. So this person who was healed immediately um, needed, I mean, learn trust in God at that moment. And those who are um, where it's taking a long time are learning to rely on God in a different way and trust God in a different way. I know that for me, if I would have had, if I could have received an immediate answer to the prayer that I was asking, I would not have gone through the, that year and a half of deep, deep soul searching. And I wouldn't have experienced significant depression and anxiety. And although I would never wish that on anyone else, I do feel that that was a really important part of my spiritual 
and mental development and emotional development. I think it was really important for me to experience that. And I think I've walked away from this year and a half of hard stuff, um, feeling a little bit more sympathetic and uh, compassionate and um, having a, a deeper trust in God than I ever did before. So I think the answer to the, well, the one answer to the question could be that it really just depends on what you need to work on. Sometimes God needs us to learn that he can be there and that he can like heal immediately. And for missionaries and for those who I think may be a little younger in their faith, that's actually a really good thing to learn. You know, it's really good to, you know, when you're a little bit younger in your faith to believe that God is immediate and God will respond and just have a lot of faith. And sometimes when you get older, um, you have to really focus on God's will in a different way mm. and think of God's will differently. And so sometimes things take longer. I don't know, Carrie, what do you think? Uh, well, I, I 100% agree. And I, and I think a lot of it comes down to, and so I'd love to launch into this discussion with you, like trying to un re reconfigure how we think of God and rather than have a God that we construct, uh, you know, we worship rather than worshiping a God who looks how we want him to look, trying to worship a God who, who is who he is. Um, but I, I mean, I, I guess in some ways, uh, for me, at least part of the answer is stuff I'm going through now that I, I mean, I have uh, dear loved ones who we've been praying for healing miracles and, uh, and not seeing it. I actually, I, I'm going to rephrase that, but let's say uh, uh, in many ways, not seeing it and asking again and again, why I've seen miracles. Why am I not seeing it now? Um, and I don't think it's because I don't have enough faith or the, the others involved don't have enough faith. Um, I think there are other things, but I have also learned through this experience to see, and it took me, it's been taking me a while to see, actually, there are little miracles along the way. I'm maybe not getting my great big miracle, immediate miracle, but I'm getting the miracles that allow us to keep going. And to, to sometimes in the immediate moment, I don't see the progression, but if I can take some steps back, I can see miraculous progression over periods of time, right? Uh, and and so maybe that's part of the answer is that God is giving us what he, uh, he knows we want. And sometimes I fail to see, or not what we want, but what we need. Uh, and sometimes I fail to see it because it's not exactly what I asked for and not what I was looking for. And and I'm only accepting answers that are exactly what I looked for and not trusting that God knows better than I do. But when I'm willing to look at it differently, I can see different answers that are, are I trust, I don't yet see, but I trust will be better than what I was looking for. So that's, that's, that's right. part of it. That's right. And I do think that if we do, if unfortunately, when we talk about if you have enough faith, God will heal you. It's just another way of saying, I can tell God what to do. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, that's that vending machine, God. right? It's the vending machine, God. So it's a nicer way of saying it, but it's saying that if I have enough faith, then God has to respond to me in this particular way. Instead of acknowledging that God is an independent sovereign being that I believe has my best interests in mind. So that means that I might have all the faith in the world, but that doesn't mean I get to control or dictate to God. I don't get to control God. I don't get to dictate to God how God's going to respond. Um, God gets to make those own decisions. And uh, make, get, God gets to make those decisions in the context of doing what's in my best interest and doing what I believe will be redemptive for me and those around me. And so I think that, you know, it is, it, it's hard because we want to control God. I mean, I think it's really nice to have a feeling that if I have enough faith in God has to respond. But I, for me personally, that has not been a helpful narrative. And I, that's when I've had to let go. Hmm. That's, uh, and I, and I like, and I'll just encourage everyone to, uh, if this is something that is, uh, in any way reflects something you you are have gone through are going through or you know someone i would encourage anyone to to look at read listen to whatever you you do uh for the book it's called divine quietness right yes. um uh, and i think you have a great discussion in there about uh and, and i love you bring in some uh some astronomy and physics uh models of of learning and saying okay sometimes uh, there's bad data that we're operating under. Sometimes there's something that we haven't noticed. Sometimes the, the tool we're using to measure things is not working correctly. Um, and, uh, and how you describe, use that. And so I just encourage people to, to read the book to really get it, but how you use that to describe ways that 
we may be thinking of God incorrectly. And this is something I, I struggle with with my students all the time. And I've mentioned it before on the podcast, but um, as we, uh, so for example, right now I'm teaching courses on Isaiah and uh, Isaiah talks about God sometimes in ways that they love and sometimes in ways that where they're like, wait, I don't think that's what God is like. And, uh, and typically this is a passage where this is God through Isaiah speaking first person. You say, well, that's what God is telling you he's like. So who are we going to believe your preconceived idea of what God is like or what God is telling you he's like? And if he is like that and it goes against your preconception, how do we reconcile those? Uh, and 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 where do we have to go uh, mentally, spiritually, and emotionally to be oh, uh, not only okay, and that's a good place to start is to be okay, but then eventually uh, happy about God being a different kind of being than what we initially thought. And, oh, go ahead. That is such a good, that is such a good question. I remember I was talking to my sister, you know, in the middle of all this, because I was really concerned with God being wrathful. And she's like, well, can't God be wrathful? Can't there be like, can a perfect God have some wrath and some anger? And it's interesting because I think that sometimes we like to say that God is love. And that means that God is happy and loving and wonderful all the time. And yeah, the, the uh, warm, fuzzy Jesus, the yeah. warm, fuzzy Jesus. But then that means that we ignore good portions of the scriptures where God does talk about anger and wrath. And what I found that's helpful for me is that you have to, um, I have to hold things in tension. And just say, there's a part of this where God is loving. There's a part of this where God is wrathful. I don't believe that I can throw out one or the other. So I just have to hold them in tension with each other and just say, there's, there's something here. I don't know how to resolve it. I can just have, I can just hold space for both of these things. And um, because I do think we see conflicting things about God in the scriptures. And I haven't been willing to I know there were a lot of folks in the process who were like, well, God is love, God is love, God is love. And I'm like, well, yeah, but that I, I think we have to be really aware that there's lots of anger <laughs> and we need to, I can't throw that out, but I also, you know, so for me just right. holding him and not needing to resolve the tension was really helpful. But I think continually looking at what ideas we have about God and bringing those to the fore, I think a lot of times our thoughts about God are under the surface. We don't necessarily recognize what they are until they hit reality. Um, but if we can recognize them and then be willing to let go of our stories and let go of the idea that we've got it exactly right and be able to play with them, that can help a lot. That can help a lot. And I have found for me, that's why I have focused basically on God is good because that's all I can say. I really can't say much more. And for a lot of people that might not be enough, but for me it's enough because I feel like there's just so much about God I can't understand and uh, that I don't know. And it's just all kind of being held together in this, well, this says this and this says this, and I'm not sure, but I know God is good. And that's all I can say. Yeah, that's good. That's powerful. So maybe I'll share a funny, uh, funny making fun of myself. Uh, part of my journey of listening to your, your book uh, it was a little ironic part because I've had, uh, I mean, one of the things I've taught and written about and spoken about all over the place uh, is is seeing the God of the Old Testament as a God who shows us mercy and love, but even being able to see that throughout all of the the uh, different uh, elements that sometimes people struggle with, right? And and I usually say, well, keep reading to the end of the story. That's part of, part of it, right? So yes, Miriam is struck and, stricken with uh, leprosy, but what happens next? Well, she's healed, and they wait for her, and she comes with them. And and how about with the children of Israel? They're scattered, but he's going to bring them back, right? Keep reading to the end of the story, and that, that will help you, as you said, Kate, just let everything stay. And as you get to the end of the story, and this is true, like, just in uh, the eternal story, we know this ends well. So let's just hold all these things in tension, knowing that sooner or later, somehow they all come together because this story does end well, right? So as I'm listening to your book and just loving it and telling people about it, and then I got to the part where uh, you said, um, I was reading the Old Testament and uh, I almost just slammed it shut because of the wrath and all of these things, right? And uh, as someone who's been writing about, okay, this people are seeing this, I, I just about just stopped the book. Okay, I'm done with this book now. Uh, and then I thought, actually, 
should be you're supposed to listen to the end of the story, aren't you? You should, you should keep going to the end and you get to the end. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. I see the journey she was on. Fantastic. Wonderful. It's a great thing, but I, I almost didn't take my own advice and, uh, and, uh, and almost regretted it. So uh, that was a, yeah. And, and there's probably only three of us that would have that reaction those of us who are old Testament, like uh, just always teaching that particular thing about the old Testament. But anyway, it was good to, to keep going to the end. And I, I would say, yeah, for me, at least, that's one of the keys for these things that we have to hold intention. Uh, I've had so many things in my research, whether it be about the book of Abraham or about the Old Testament or about Joseph Smith or something where you say, OK, I don't know what to do with both this and this. So I'm just going to wait. And uh, I have some things that are still waiting there. But I would say, given enough time and research, 90 percent of the things that at one point I didn't know what to do with as I kept going, uh, they came together. OK. I can get this now, which I've had that experience enough that I, I'm okay with sitting with two things that don't quite come together yet. I know the story ends well. I, as you say, I know God is good. I know that uh, eventually everything is going to work out. And so I can, I can wait, even if it's another couple thousand years, to see how those two things come together, right? Right. And it's so interesting. I feel like we live in a culture where you need to have an opinion now. Like you need to have an opinion about everything, and it needs to be immediate. And if you can just say, I don't need to make a decision about this now. I don't have enough information. I haven't thought about it deeply enough. Um, I'm just going to give it some space and some time. And that's a beautiful place to be. If you do not have to have an opinion now. You don't need to solve the mysteries of the universe now. So just give it some time and space and, and uh, see, what, see what happens. And um, it's amazing what just, just time can do to soften you and help you see things a little bit differently. But you don't need an opinion now. You don't need to solve everything now. I, I could not agree more. And in fact, if I could get both uh, in terms of faith and in terms of scholarship, more people to come to that point of view, kind of drives me nuts that we have this, this idea that so often we just don't have enough data. Yeah. And, um, and yet we feel like we have to say something. So maybe I'll just use one example um, where, and this was where I was uh, writing, uh, comparing two e translations of an Egyptian document. Uh, and uh, saying this guy translated it this way, this guy translated it this way. But if you look at the actual papyrus and so on, it's a little bit broken and a little bit smudged there. You cannot tell. We don't have enough data to tell why. And I can see why this guy decided this way and this guy decided this way. So someone else who's translated it later, he says, well, so-and-so said this, so-and-so said this. Mulestein just couldn't decide. So, but I'm saying that I'm going to translate it this way, right? And if you're going to translate, you have to at some point make a decision. But I would still put in the caveat, we don't know, right? And it kind of in his mind, it was a problem for a scholar to not decide. And in my mind, it's a problem for a scholar to decide when we don't have enough data to decide. Let's let's just admit we can't tell and be OK with saying that we can't tell. And that's true in scholarship. It's also true. Uh, I mean, and that has plagued Book of Abraham studies, has plagued biblical studies, has plagued religious ideas. It's it's true in religion. And uh, I hope we can all just wait. This is part of why I am glad to have a God I can't understand. If I could understand him, that would say he's not much greater than I am. And um, and I am also happy to be living in a, a world where I can't understand everything yet because I want to become something much higher than I am now. And if I could understand everything now, then this would imply that, okay, we're not going to grow much from here. And so I'm happy to to be in a state where I can say, there's a lot of stuff I don't understand now. And that's fine because I'm expecting to become something very different in the future. And then I will understand it. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a fabulous way of putting it. And, and let me just say, just not only is uncertainty good to get comfortable with in our religious life, it's something that I see in, in the legal world. Like I do a lot of a criminal defense. And so, you know, sometimes I honestly don't know what happened. And it's just like, I don't know. I don't know what happened, but I can still defend my client because there were some issues that happened, at, you know, at trial, there was some evidence that was problematic, but um, it's actually kind of freeing to say, I don't know what happened and I don't have to have an opinion about what actually happened, but I can say that there is this particular problem that we can argue about. And so, you know, I think uncertainty is something that we're used to in all parts of our lives. But for some reason, sometimes with religion, we think that it should be certain because God is great and, you know, God's all powerful. And um, but it's just as messy here. Yeah. <laughs> and then sometimes it's more messy because we're dealing with a being that, like you said, we hope we don't understand because we want God to be greater and more powerful than we are. Yeah. Very good. Well, uh, 
we'll, we'll probably want to wrap up before too long, but is there anything else you'd like to, to talk about in terms of even this verse or your journey and the things that uh, uh, you hope people will come away with as, as they read your book or listen to it or however they consume it? Uh, mm -hmm. what, what else do you have that you'd like to, to talk about? Well, um, just going back to Mark 9, it is really powerful to be in a spot where you can acknowledge your doubts about shame and when you can work with them. And so if we can be like the father and say, you know what, Jesus can work with me, even when I am feeling like I'm in this doubting space, that's a, that's a powerful place to be. And if you can use your doubts as a, um, as kind of a, a journey or a path to come to a faith that's a little bit more solid, a little bit closer to reality, a little bit closer to God, a little bit more trusting of God, then that's a wonderful path to walk in. So we don't necessarily need to be afraid of our doubts. We don't need to be afraid that those around us are doubting. We can, those doubts can be used for our good. And our friends and neighbors who are doubting, their doubts can be used for their good. So I, I would hope walking away from it that we can maybe talk about them a little bit more openly um, and, and approach them in a healthier way where we can actually use our doubts to see these invisible frameworks that are animating our faith and really take a look at those and say, is this helpful? Is this not helpful? What things do I need to work out? What things do I need more information on? What things do I need to hold intention? Um, those are all great ways of interacting with our faith, but oftentimes we can't get there unless we doubt first. Uh, that's very good. And and I'll just agree. I, I love that the Savior does not chastise him for having some unbelief. He's willing to work with him. <clears throat> and as he prays for, he is willing to help him in his unbelief. And in that story, it happens quickly, but it, I think the Savior is willing to uh, work with this in our unbelief over the, literally, I believe, over the eons. Uh, we, we're in this for the long haul. He's in it for the long haul. He plays a long game. And uh, we, we should feel very comfortable with him knowing that we have belief and we have unbelief. And he's gonna gonna sit with us and walk beside us for however long it takes to become what he knows we can become. Well said. Well said. Well, thank you so much, Emily. I'm so grateful you would take the time. You, I mean, the audience should know that uh, she just got an email. I emailed the editors at Desert Book, and they emailed her, and she just got this edit, uh, email from out of the blue, someone that she knew nothing about, and and was still willing to come and uh, and visit with us. And uh, she's so, uh, I just have to say, you're so open and and vulnerable in such a uh, helpful way in that book, and uh, and you have been here as well. And that's not easy, but it's important and powerful. So I just want to thank you both for the book and for taking the time to, to come on and visit with my audience uh, here. Uh, I, I just love my audience and thank for, thanks for doing that. And I hope that as they've heard things that are helpful for themselves, that's wonderful. And if you know, I would guess everyone listening knows someone who this discussion would be helpful for. And we hope that you'll reach out and share with people because that's what the gospel is about. So thank you, Emily. Thank you so much, Carrie. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you and you on. All right. Well, to our audience, thank you. We, we appreciate your being with us and have a wonderful day. Thank you.